Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Smart People Podcast, the podcast for smart people, where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That would be myself, Chris Stemp, and my co-host. Say hi, John. Hey, John. What's up? Hey, hey, that's John Rojas. Actually, he um, he is the reason we had the guest, this guest on the show this week. Uh, this week, we speak with Steve Almond, author funny guy, intellectual. And I guess I'll turn it over to you, John. What uh, what kind of turned you on to this guy? Well, as you know, I listen to podcasts throughout my entire workday. And he was on one of the ones that I listened to on a regular basis. He sounded funny, sounded really interesting. And after hearing him speak, I was like, oh man, I got to pick up some of his books. So I picked up his book, Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life read it in about three and a half hours and was just completely into it. You know what, you know what, uh, when you first told me about this guy, it reminded me of that class we took in college, History of Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, man, that class was just so awesome because I don't think I ever went and you totally loved it. Just, I remember I did, that. and I actually referenced that class the other day saying that I wish I paid more attention in that class because mm -hmm. I stumbled across this, uh, this singer, Big May Bell, check her out sometime. She was old, like blues rockish. She was an inspiration to Jimmy Page and other rock and roll people. But I never really appreciated, you know, that music from the, I guess, early 50s and, and 60s. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, in any event, back to this week's guest, Steve. You know, I, I was kind of more intrigued by his book, Candy Freak, where he just talks about the story of candy and he goes on this well, this national tour going into smaller candy shops and everything 
being a um, candy connoisseur myself, I kind of liked, you know, what he had to say about that as well. Yes, he was a uh, he was obsessed with candy, and made it a point to to find all his favorite candies across the I guess America or the world. And what else do we know about Steve? We know he was a professor at Boston College. What what else you got there? He also was a reporter for several years at the Miami New Times. Um, you know, he reviewed books for the Boston Globe and the Los Angeles Times. He's just a good author and he focuses on on short stories and you know, those are I'm not going to say usually interesting, but he puts an interesting personal touch on them, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and I was a little suspect about, you know, talking to him just because didn't know much, but it turned out to be a hilarious episode, one that is clearly marked explicit in the download uh, category or whatever you want to call it. And um, it was just fun, funny, and really informative and interesting, I got to admit. Yeah, so. yeah, you know, you might want to you might want to refrain from your kids listening to it. It's not that he's crude in an explicit way, but he tends to drop some f bombs and in some other words, which adds to the excitement. So absolutely, we're gonna let you listen to Steve here in a minute. Um, make sure to check us out, smartpeoplepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, where we'd like to steer everybody. Just go on, hit the like button, see what we have to say, and we got some books lying around here. Our, our last episode where we interviewed Tom Shanker, we have some books that we'd like to give away. So give us a little shout out on Facebook or something. And feel free to contact us, which you can do Facebook or through our website. Let us know what you think. And let us know if you have any ideas for guests in the future. Now enjoy the interview with Steve. You seem to be just a, a, a really funny guy and a good writer who just writes about anything he is interested in. Is that pretty much how you decide, You said one day, I'm just going to write about things that I like doing and then just did it? It's probably a little bit more complicated than things I like <laughs> doing, although that's some of it. I mean, it's mostly like things I like doing would be part of it. Like I like visiting chocolate factories. I like listening to music and being a freaky fan about it. But a lot of what I write about is pretty much basically, certainly in the nonfiction, just things that I have fucked up, things that I have horrible, shameful, humiliating episodes that most pe sensible people would not want to write about or revisit um, outside the context of like a therapist's office. But what I would say more broadly is true is, yeah, I'm not interested in writing about stuff that I'm not openly obsessed with, whether I'm consciously obsessed with rock and roll or candy or, you know, sort of our sexual lives, our hidden sexual lives, that stuff I'm consciously obsessed with. A lot of the fiction I write, it's all driven by any, any, any good kind of writing, any good kind of art is driven by the stuff that you're obsessed about, the stuff that you can't get out of your craw. And, um, you know, good, a good short story is about that stuff, but you don't really know it because it's mostly your artistic unconscious that's just fixing on a particular image or line or, you know, some... Uh, story that you heard at the bar somewhere. And so I don't try to sit there and figure out, like, why am I, why is this resonating? I just know if something sticks in my craw, I, I should probably be writing about it. If I can't get rid of it by other means, I should probably be writing about it. Okay. And I like that. I like what you were saying about, you know, you write about things you fucked up in the past and everything like that. Because, again, I watched um, one of the commencement speeches you gave, and it, it was enthralling. I, I 
just kept watching it. And there's two old guys in the background who look like there's some parts of that speech they just really don't enjoy. Like you mentioned something about a bong and like just some other stuff. It, it made me realize, like, do you think that the reason you have these funny anecdotes and these funny stories is because you kind of don't adhere to a lot of the social norms or you just don't care and you just, it is what it is? Kind of a combination. I mean, here's what I think. Everybody has their own storehouse of horrible, shameful stuff. You guys, if I, you know, if we got to talking and I gave you truth serum or we just got in a particular mood, you guys would both be able to confess lots of horrible, shameful stuff you thought and done. Because that's the nature of being a human being is that you, you have the story of yourself, the kind of marketing version of yourself polite, well-spoken, good habits of thought and feeling and considerate to people and never petty and, you know, large-hearted and all that bullshit. And that's like how you try to be. And that's the story that you want the world to believe of who you are. And then there's the other story, which is who you really are, you know, disappointed, angry, literally your body stinks. You know, you do all sorts of dumb shit. You fail in a million different ways. You're super resentful of anybody who's doing better than you. You're pissed off at your family. You're pissed off at yourself. You can't get past a lot of stuff you should be able to get past. And that's who you really are, or at least it's a big part of who you really are. And what I'm interested in, what I think makes interesting art, is the point at which those two stories collide, whether it's you or a character you're writing about. You know, the story of the person you want the world to believe you are and the story of the person who you know yourself to be, like that kind of horrible, clanging moment of self-revelation is what I'm interested in because I think people are inundated by marketing, especially in this culture. And what they really want is for somebody to just fucking tell the truth about the shit that matters to them. Not for some, not to pitch some goddamn underarm deodorant or white beer or fucking <laughs> stupid big ass SUV, but just because it's painful to be a human being. It's great and exalted and joyful, and those things should be celebrated, but it's also really tough to have a big brain that makes you conscious of yourself and your moral responsibility to others and the way in which you don't live up to those responsibilities. So I think people just feel a sense of relief when they feel somebody isn't fucking bullshitting them because they're having bullshit at one sort or another crammed down their throats pretty much 24-7. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more because I feel like I oftentimes really lack that filter. Like my, my friends kind of know it of me and just a lot of people. And that's why I think I've had some issues in corporate America and things because I just, I, I, I can't be as fake as oftentimes you're needed to be to succeed in some areas. Do you think that art is a good way to get that uh, expression out in a way that is genuine to you? Well, I mean, that's, it's the best way we've found. I don't know if I'm in a position to be defining what art is, but from my vantage point, it's not necessary in, in, a, in a material way. It's not, you know, for people to have an imagination, for them to um, sort of examine their internal lives and the chaos of their internal lives, there's no profit in that. Okay, in late model capitalism, it's a complete loser product. That's why I'm so far out on the cultural fringe, I can fucking stare over the edge. That's sort of what artists are supposed to be doing is saying, there's really no good reason for you to read this book or check out this painting or watch this film, other than the fact that you might just be lonely and confused as hell and not know how to live another moment as a human being unless you know that you're not alone with all this crazy, fucked up, chaotic shit. And by the way, I know this sounds unbelievably depressing. 
but I think the people who are the who are the most openly and honestly baffled by trying to just live and and under you know sort of survive your own bad behavior and 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 all the horrible bad data of your own heart and of the world at large. Those people, generally speaking, develop a really brilliant mechanism to live with that, and that is a sense of fucking humor. I mean, that's kind of the one saving grace that the, the the impulse towards forgiveness is that despite the fact that we're all walking around lugging this sorrow behind us and all these shameful memories and all these invasive thoughts, the one thing that you have that human beings have developed to contend with that big brain, that big troubled brain, is that they can just fucking joke about it, that they can step away from it and recognize the great cosmic joke that is being a person. So that's, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm coming off as very heavy-handed or, you know, that life is suffering or something like that. I, no, I think no. that but you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff to talk about. It doesn't get talked about a lot. And the point is that all the people who I admire have taken those feelings that they are ready to honestly look at and converted them usually into humor. Like all the great, you know, most of the great um, uh, sort of heartbroken idealists are humorous. Twain, Vonnegut, Stuart, you know, John Stewart and Colbert, the the fool from King Lear. I mean, this idea that comedy and tragedy are separate entities or they're somehow opposed is complete nonsense. So comedy is the thing that allows you to look at your own tragedy, the tragedy of your circumstances, without being crushed by them. It's like the one thing you have. It's, it's, it's Charlie Chaplin saying, you know, being the only person in the United States to stand up and say, they are turning human beings into killing machines over in Germany. And, you know, Everybody else is going, oh, well, you know, that's over in Germany and whatever, you know, the trains run on time over there and they got funny uniforms, but it's not affecting us. And, you know, the comedians are the ones who I think have that extra sensitivity and they, so they pick up on more dark shit, but the way that they contend with it is that they convert it into, you know, into humor. Steve, now I guess uh, a couple of weeks ago you had done an interview with Mark Marin on his uh, podcast, WTF Pod. And one, right. of the, one of the things that you got into talking about was – Kind of our generation being a, um, a a a body generation where we're so worried about our outward appearance and what other people think about us and all that kind of stuff, and we're really, I guess, missing that whole meaning of life where we're trying to figure out how to develop relationships and be happy and make others happy. I mean, do you see us continuing on that downward slope of more of this focusing on completely the the wrong things? There's a huge economic incentive. For Americans, since we'll just talk about America, I'm not big on making generalizations about this generation, that generation. I'm 45, so to me, I'm just fucking old. And like I already sound, because technology makes everybody sound like they're 90. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I already like have Sam Lipsight, this great funny writer, has this line. I, this character is talking about having the old brain, like the old brain that doesn't understand the new wiring and the internet and the interconnectivity and all this stuff. So I already feel like I'm kind of ancient. Um, but I will speak to what I've seen, you know, in my time on earth, which is things are moving faster. Late model capitalism has set up a, a circumstance where technology has been harnessed to move people through information and, and physical space and emotional states so much quicker than we used to pass through them. And, you know, just look at the corner of any screen and see how quickly it's the edits are happening now. And all that has been harnessed mostly by corporations to try and make people hunger after the next McNugget, the next beer, the next perfume that will get you laid, whatever product they're trying to sell. And so there's this kind of frantic, it's almost like this existential 
cursor that's constantly flashing, and it's flashing a new buy message every fucking two seconds. And that's just, nobody's to blame for that. That's just how capitalism has acted in, in, in concert with technology, has acted upon this culture. But what it means is that people are not slowing down and paying attention to their own internal lives and to kind of what it means to be a human being. These larger questions that, frankly, Mark Maron is one of the few guys who kind of wrestles with in a big way. And I think part of the reason that people like listening to him talk with people is because they sense that he's a guy who is going to grapple with those big things that we're all secretly grappling with. But there's just a huge and incredibly well-monetized industry, set of industries that are in the business of keeping people focused on the illusion that if they buy the right shit, they'll be happy and they won't have to worry about all this internal turmoil. Um, I don't know if that's going to get better or worse. I just don't know. My hunch is it's going to get worse. And I say that with, I'm heartbroken. I mean, I got a two and a five year old and I don't want them tracked down by roving diesel mobs, you know, in Mad Max gear. Like I want them to be, to live a happy, sustainable life. But the, the life that we are living, all of us are complicit in this, particularly in the United States is not sustainable. We don't have the stuff, and we we don't have the oil, we don't have the water, but much more importantly than that, we do not have the, the attention, the sustained, the ability to pay attention in a sustained manner, the moral imagination, to recognize other people's suffering and the fact that other we are responsible ultimately for other people, and that's what sort of allows you to live in that haze of, well, let me just get mine, let me just buy the next thing that I'm going to buy and not worry about whether... You know, there's going to be enough stuff left for my kids or grandkids. You know, the scientists have told us who are in charge of this stuff. Like the crazy thing about the way that our media works is that the people who are making declarations about what's important and what matters are complete fucking paid for demagogues. They're for-profit demagogues. The people who I listen to, who I trust, are scientists. And the scientists tell us, here's all the bad stuff that's coming unless we repent, unless we correct ourselves. They're almost like prophets in the Old Testament. They're saying, look, this is not sustainable. And to take collective action, you know, there's no reason that a country as wealthy as the United States should not figure out a way for everybody to get the medical care they need, for everybody to get the education they need to, you know, to, to survive in this new world of technology and the rest of it. There's just no reason. But those things have become complete, like, pipe dreams in the current political environment that we live in. It's it's kind of funny to look at it, you know, an issue like uh, global warming and, and whether or not, you know, you believe in it. It's and, called and, climate change now, John, yeah, oh, climate change. Climate change, my, my <laughs> apology. And, you know, you've got people that believe in it, you've got people that don't. But to, just to sit back and say, oh, the Earth's going to take care of itself and the people will take care of them, you know, itself and things will just work itself out is kind of a you know a ridiculous notion to make where if we can do anything to help it out you know why why not go for it and try to you know solar power all that kind of stuff but i i also wanted to to mention a quote that you said in that same interview with with marion where you said a good uh piece of art implicates the reader or the consumer of you know whatever that piece of art may be and i picked up your book rock and roll will save your life a few days ago and i seriously sat down for three, three and a half hours and just read the book cover to cover was completely sucked in. And I know I sent a text message to Chris saying, Hey, you've got to pick up Steve's book. It's amazing. You know, I was completely enthralled with it. And that's something that I've, that I've missed in, you know, 
recently, just because of like what you mentioned with the technology, things being so fast, I'm always on the internet seeing what's new and all that kind of stuff. I never really sit back and read, but I wanted to and, jump. And, and furthermore, furthermore, Chris being the sorry ass that he did, did obviously did not take you up on that. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'll get to it. I got to update my fucking face blurb. <laughs> yeah, I had to, you know, I had to put on a new profile picture after Halloween. I mean, I important understand. things. You got, you, you got your priorities. You got your priorities. <laughs> no, but it, it really is. Uh, it's an amazing book. And I will say this up front. I had no idea who Ike Riley was. And I think it's yeah. a shame that more people don't know who he is because his music is amazing. And I, I kind of wanted to, to jump into that first and just go through the story about how you how you met Ike Riley and what that was for you. Sure. Well, I'll just say, like, the reason I wrote the book, you just expressed, like, it is a shame that people don't know Ike Riley, Joe Henry, Dana Kurtz, Gil Scott Heron, you know, Bob Schneider, whoever, Neil Lara, any of these amazing artists. It's just it's heartbreaking. Not because it's the world's going to end, in it, but just because it would give them a lot of joy if they, if, they, if they knew of those artists. And I really am so tired of seeing the same bands kind of dominate the, you know, the big markets and like, what about all these other dudes who are making great art? But I basically just found Mike Wiley's music and thought it was awesome. And I mean, this book was my way of just trying to basically creepily, frankly, like try to get into their life a little bit, try and figure out who they are, how they make music, how their ideas come to them, whatever, just to fucking be be around them because I admire them so much. And it's about lots of other things as well, but that's the nature of fandom. Like, everybody dreams of being a rock star, but there's about 2% of people who really try to be rock stars, maybe 1%, and of that 1%, it's like a thousandth of a percent who actually get to be working musicians and maybe a thousandth of that percent who get to be rock stars. So the experience of, of being a fan never gets written about. You know, you always get the experience of the rock star and the almost famous kind of, you know, myth of what it's like to trash your hotel room and fucking fuck the groupies and all that stuff. And that's great. That's America. That's like the big myth. Everybody wants to hit the jackpot and beat the dude. But I was trying to write about the much more common experience of, of loving music and feeling that you need music to reach the feelings inside you that you can't reach by other means. That's what it is for me and I think for most people. And Ike Riley, I really just, when I found Salesman and Racist, that first album, I just had never heard anything that was like it, which is what I want to, you know, always dream of in a band. You know, what is it? It's blues, it's hip-hop, it's Celtic, it's fucking punk, it's like The Clash and Dylan and all of that stuff and the Pogues all swirl together. So angry, so eloquent, the stories are great, you know, in a state of outrage. And I could tell that he was probably a fucked up dude. That's why I like this music, because I'm a fucked up dude. I was like, yeah, another fucked up dude, awesome. I want to get into this guy's world. And he was very reluctant to have me come visit him, because he's sitting there going, dude, I know how good my shit is, but I'm not a rock star. Like, I got four kids, and that's no honest man can pay. Like, don't come see that I'm still living in my hometown. I think there was a lot of shame on his part that he hadn't become a big rock star. And seeing him, it really, like, he almost kicked me out when I, when I went to visit him with my friend, the close. He almost literally, just like the first night, an hour after we arrived, he was so ambivalent about me being there that he was just ready to, like, kick me out and just have his big, burly Australian um, road manager, like, literally kick me physically, kick me in the ass so hard that I would be launched from his studio out of second story window 
into his driveway and then would have to leave the premises. But he eventually kind of settled down and recognized that, um, you know, I was really just somebody who admired his work and um, really had listened to everything and thought he was an important artist and wanted to just see how he did his how he did his business. And he just wound up being, uh, like like a lot of people, really irascible on the surface, but a complete sweetheart underneath that. He would probably puke if I if you heard me say that. But he's a you know he's a real pussy cat. <laughs> now you coined the term drooling fanatic to you know describe yourself and fans that are obsessed with the music might not necessarily play an instrument or have any talent to play an instrument, but just own tons of albums, own all the movie posters and all that stuff. What right. was your biggest drooling fanatic moment? Oh, man. I mean, I've had a lot of them because, uh, you know, part of it is, I mean, I, I would say that like the, the, the longest and most embarrassing for all involved would have been my visit to see this guy, Bob Schneider, who lives outside Austin. You know, my feelings towards Bob Schneider are like as close as you can get to homosexual attraction without just fucking becoming homosexual. <laughs> like I'm married, I have kids, I love women, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this guy when is so handsome, so talented, and so, and not like handsome in some like gives a shit, you know, spray tan Hollywood way. He's just a dude who just is incredibly attractive, partly because he's just such a badass. He can play any kind of music, any genre. He writes a shitload of songs. He's the most magnetic magnetic performer I've ever seen. Um, and visiting him was, I just felt like I was seeing the other side of it. Because I see, and this is true of our rock stars, like we see this exalted moment where they're on stage doing their thing. The audience is totally like giving them that energy and it's this kind of Dionysian, just fucking orgy of excitement and musical pleasure but seeing that you know seeing any performer off stage is really there's an inherent awkward to it awkwardness to it like he's just a guy he's not the rock star that i need him to be he's just a dude and not and furthermore he's a really haunted guy so you know went to his house which is outside austin and pretty much we spent like four or five excruciatingly awkward hours with me asking questions he was also very generous and very forthcoming, in fact, amazingly honest about, you know, kind of how he really feels and how he moves through the world, which is he makes music and he loves it, but it's basically the thing that keeps him alive because otherwise he's really depressed a lot of the time. And it was very terrifying to see that, but it was also remarkable that he was so honest. And it's part of what makes him a great artist is that he just can't help himself. He just is honest with people. But it was very, very awkward because, you know, any kind of interview with, a, with anybody is just contrived. You know, it's just a contrived situation. You have to, like, plan to have a conversation with somebody. But it's especially contrived when, you you know, you show up at their house and they obviously aren't in a mood to want to talk, but they're too nice a person to basically say, like, sorry, go home, fly back to Boston from, you know, Texas, and let's try to do this another time. So he, he sort of put up with it. Um, but it was just an ongoing, and I just felt so awkward, too, because one part of me was like, wow, I... Bob Snyder's a really heavy dude. I'm so glad he's leveling with me. And another part was just like a squealing 14-year-old girl, like, oh, my God, I'm in Bob's heavy bathroom. Oh, my God, look at his soap. He's a cool soap. And what kind of things is he reading? He's got such big, sexy man hands. And I was just like, it was oh, just a sad, horrible moment for me. But, again, that's what I like. I'm like, okay, I'm in another one of those sad, horrible moments. I, I will enjoy trying to purge this by writing it. Now, I, I do want to say that I don't think it's uh, a long shot to say you're probably pretty outspoken about your political views. I, I think if anybody listened to the last 20 minutes or so, 
they'd pick up on that. And so right. it, in true fashion, you decided to to write a book about it, right? Which is your most recent book, God Bless America, which um, I, I haven't had the opportunity to pick that one up either, but but I will. You are, you are impressing me already. Like, <laughs> I'm going to get around to your book eventually. <laughs> After but, updating my Facebook profile. But I, I heard that uh, it was one of Glenn Beck's favorite books, and so that kind of worried me a little bit. Mm, yeah. So so just to clarify, because I, I put out a trail like this book trailer, because um, I've had a long relationship with sort of the right wing in this country and, and been on Hannity and Combs, and, you know, sort of I've had had my moments of interacting. I do enough radio myself, progressive talk kind of radio that I just, I know that business. So I wanted to give them a little ribbing. So, I, you know, the name of the book is God Bless America. It's not meant ironically. It's not meant as like, oh, America sucks. Like America's awesome. I'm a super patriot. Only in America would somebody be able to say the kind of shit that I say and <laughs> not be thrown in prison or executed. I mean, that's, we're the, we're an awesome country. All I want, and the title in a sense is this, it's kind of aspirational. Like I want to feel that I want to celebrate my country. I want I desperately. I think a lot of people, most of the people who voted for Obama felt like they basically wanted to feel good about the United States again. They wanted to feel that we were going to make good decisions, whether domestically or in foreign policy, that we were going to be, you know, a good moral actor, a good citizen. And we could feel proud and feel like, yes, we are the best country on earth, not because we have the most money or because we're the most powerful, but because we do good things with that money and power. We're compassionate. We're good hearted. We live up to our ideals. The book is not a political book, though. I just should clarify. It's a book of short stories, which means that Chris will fucking never, ever, ever read it. But, you know, (laughs) that's what I do. That's what I do best is I, I write short stories. Um, I recognize that, again, that sort of puts me off on, on, on the margins of the culture, but they are the quickest way to implicate the reader. They're the sort of stories that people naturally tell. Um, you know, people don't speak in poems or novels. They speak in stories. And the stories are all about individual Americans. There's no political agenda to the book. It's not some left-wing rant. It's really about the way that people in America are living right now. And it's just 13 stories about 13 different people, men, women, old, young, and it mostly just deals with what it is like to have to, you know, sort of survive particularly difficult moments where that one story I talked about earlier, the story of who you want to believe you are and you want the world to believe you are, runs up smack, you know, real hard against a sense of who you really are inside. And that collision, that explosion, that bloody mess is... Um, what I try to capture in the stories. They're not, you know, many of them are humorous or they have a humorous cast to them. They're not depressing. Um, but they are pretty much what what's happening in America. And that, that means that I think people are quite lonely and people have fallen away from their families and themselves and they're sort of hurtling through time and space and information more and more quickly. So that's that's sort of what the stories are about. I will tell you that I'm more apt to read short stories because they're shorter. So... I think, and and I do like the way you present it and everything. Obviously, I think you're a really funny guy. I I recommend everyone to um at least watch the trailer as you mentioned for God Bless America, which is which is uh located on your website. Which do you want to tell our listeners about your website or anywhere else that you want to lead them? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess just yeah, I mean, it's just stephenalman.com. If people want to check it out, the best thing that they could do, I would think, is um. God, you know, it's such a tough thing because I, I sort of feel like 
well, if they're, if they're listening to a podcast that's allegedly smart people anyway, and that <laughs> maybe means they're readers. So if they are readers or the idea of reading doesn't offend them, then I'm not that, you know, my stuff's not that hard to find. I have the website and I have the Facebook page. And, you know, it's not like I'm sitting here in some cave going, like, technology, get away from me. Al. I'm <laughs> old man almond. I kick you off my porch. Like, I'm out there and, you know, my stuff can be found, I think, you know, with the Google machine. I also feel like, look, the larger, it's, it's, it's my job to make short stories and reading in general something that people feel like isn't, like it's just closer to the center of the culture. I don't know how the fuck I'm going to do that. But you mentioned it before, like it's possible to pick up a book by an author that you don't know before and never heard of and read it and feel like, oh, I am deeply entertained by this. I feel less alone. I feel stimulated. I feel excited about it rather than I think the general perception of reading, which is it has nothing to do with me. It's some eggheaded pursuit that belongs in the academy. And I don't know how in the fuck I'm going to convince people that books can save their lives and that literature can save their lives. But that's sort of the, the jihad I'm on. I mean, I applaud that because we're doing something similar. I mean, we we just go through Amazon or go through recommendations or our listeners write in and say, hey, this guy's awesome. And we've talked to tons of people that I might not have found and ended up really appreciating what they had to say and things like that. So, I mean, just by being out there, you're doing it in a much more difficult way, which requires hours and days and months and years of your life. We take out Correct. about an hour. You guys, <laughs> but, that's right. That's right. You guys just basically sit on your ass grazing intellectually, morally, and creatively on the internet, and then you talk with some jackass like me for an hour. That's, that's it. And I but think we're of the two models, I prefer yours. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, thanks so much. This was awesome and hilarious. And uh, believe it or not, our, our listeners do read, so I'm sure they will uh, check out one of your books, God Bless America, Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, or Candy Freak. Thanks for being on. Best of luck in the future. All right, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna wait by the phone to get Chris's book report. I think that's <laughs> pretty much a losing fucking endeavor. But check it out uh, on our I, website. It'll be on our website. How about that? There you go. All right, all right. That sounds good. I'll, I'll be checking every four minutes. Yes, our views just went up. Thanks so much, Steve. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed what. Steve Almond had to say, I know even as I went back and edited it, I, uh, I had some laughs and also some, some moments of deep reflection and intellectual thought. So it was a, it was a good interview all around, I, I feel like. Did he convince you to pick up his book? Yeah, actually, I think I'm going to go get uh, the short stories book. I haven't read short stories in a long time, and I always enjoy them, so... I figured after the berating that you got from him, I mean, I know he was joking around, but I figured you'd go out and pick up at least one of them so we can, you know, hit him back up again and say, hey, checked it out. It's good. It's bad. Whatever. Well, and um, we will have links to how you can buy his book. There's a couple of different places he would like us to steer you to. But as always, you can go to uh, our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com for further information, or you can go to Amazon and you can find all of Steve's books as well. But definitely do it through our website, clicking our Amazon banner. And you know what, Chris? You know it's coming up pretty soon? Um, a softball game. I have a softball game. That is true. We have a softball game in about 45 minutes. What about the holidays, man? Think about ah. it. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, all these holidays that people are shopping for. And they should be doing it through our website, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. 
and clicking the Amazon link. Every yeah, the banner. It's the yeah. big banner at the top that you recently put up there. It makes it all visible and easy it. to use. Can't miss it. So go help us out. Support us. No cost to you. Click on that. Anything you order gives us a little kickback. It's uh, it's the way I'm feeding my dog right now. Oh, poor Bronx. <laughs> all right, everybody. Make sure to tune in next week when we'll have another equally entertaining episode of Smart People Podcast. See you guys. <laughs>